Tonight, our topic is on the mark of the beast and the seal of God, as Victor was saying. And it is uh, an intense topic, but I pray that you will be blessed as you hear it. And before we get into it, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we don't want to go any further here tonight, Lord, without asking for your presence and your blessing to be upon us. Lord, please speak to us tonight. Lord, help us to understand clearly, Lord, what this beast power is in the book of Revelation chapter 13 and what its mark of authority is. And Father, we pray clearly that you would help us to see what the seal of God is because that is what we want, Lord, more than anything. We want your seal and we want your approval to be upon us, Lord. Guide us and bless our study tonight, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you mention the, t- the subject of the mark of the beast, it brings up many different images in people's minds. When meetings like this occur on prophecy, the mark of the beast and the topic of 666 is typically one of the most looked forward to of the presentations. Many people think that uh, Revelation is primarily about the beast and its mark. But what many people don't realize is that Revelation is mostly about the Lamb. Amen? It is about Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So it's all about Jesus, friends. So whatever this mark of the beast is, it must have to do with this universal struggle between Christ and Satan that we've looked at in our series thus far. It must be significant if an entire chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, is dedicated to this very topic. But unfortunately, friends, many people out there are extremely confused on this topic of the, of the beast and its mark. And before we go to Revelation tonight, we need to look at a foundational text that I think is very crucial for us here at our Discover Prophecy Seminar. And it's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were, what? Moved by the Holy Spirit. Now keep this in mind as we begin our message tonight, friends. Bible prophecy did not come by the will of man. John the Revelator wasn't just sitting in Patmos and just came up with all this stuff on his own. He did not do that. The Bible says that he was moved by the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you believe that the Holy Spirit is at work today still? Yes. Amen. He is still at work touching hearts and he is guiding us in our journey in this life. So in order to understand what the mark of the beast is, we first must know the first question, and that is, who is the beast? Because we can't know the mark of the beast until we know who the beast is. The mark of the beast isn't something that we need to guess about, friends. The book of Revelation clearly unfolds who this beast power is. Some people out there have wondered, well, is the beast a person? We will be looking at that tonight. In fact, many uh, have thought throughout the years that, that maybe the beast was Adolf Hitler. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? Some people in the past have said that. Uh, so they say, well, maybe he was the beast power. Well, others have thought that maybe it would be a, a political leader. Some have even played around with numbers and have suggested that maybe it was one of the U.S. presidents that was the beast power. Another question that some people uh, ask is, is the beast an organization? Is it an organization? And if so, is it a political organization or is it a religious organization or both? We will find that out tonight. We'll also look at what 666 means. 
And then there's another question, and this is a very important question. How can I avoid receiving the mark of the beast? Friends, we do not want to receive the mark of the beast, do we? I don't think anyone in their right mind would want to receive the mark of the beast. The book of Revelation clearly reveals the answers to these questions. And now when we study the mark of the beast, we, are, we need to remember that we are studying the revelation of Jesus Christ because that is what the book of Revelation is all about. And just as the beast has a mark or sign, Jesus also has a mark or sign. The book of Revelation does two things. It reveals truth, but it also exposes error. Revelation talks about a struggle, about a battle between a, the conflict between good and evil. So in light of this final conflict between Christ and Satan, there is a struggle between true worship and a struggle between false worship. And this crisis centers around the mark of the beast and God's seal. So let's go directly to Revelation chapter 13 tonight. Revelation chapter 13 will spend a significant amount of time, the, the majority of our time right here in Revelation chapter 13 for both presentations tonight. Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Then I, John, stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So the Bible describes a dreadful beast which comes up out of where? Out of the sea, right? Now remember that uh, Bible prophecy often uses symbols to describe world powers and even world events. The reason God does this is so that his word is preserved from enemies that might want to destroy the truth because they don't know how to decode these symbols. And, and because of that, God has been able to preserve his word uh, from those powers that might want to destroy it. But with the Holy Spirit's help, friends, his people can unlock the mysteries and understand it in these last days. Notice that this beast comes up from where? It comes up from the sea. Let's see what this means. Let's let scripture interpret scripture. We want to understand what the Bible says about sea. What, what does this symbolize? Well, just a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, the Bible says, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So waters or seas represent people in Bible prophecy, a highly populated area of the world. Now, the Bible talks about this beast in Revelation 13 as being like four beasts. It says um, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon. And uh, do you remember that we looked at some of these characters last weekend? Yeah. Uh, we saw them in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, what does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Do you guys remember that? Yes, it, it represents a kingdom. The Bible says kingdom or nation. Daniel 7, 23 says, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So it's clear, friends, that a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom or a political power. But unfortunately, people are, many people are misled and they think that the beast is just one evil person. And the Bible, but the Bible continues to describe this beast further in Revelation 13, verse 2. The Bible says the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So whoever this beast is, friends, he gets his authority or his seat 
of his government from this dragon-like beast. Now remember, in Bible prophecy, God uses animals to describe nations. We looked at that last week. Do we sometimes do that in our world today? Yes, we do. In fact, we even use animals to describe political parties, even here in the United States. If I mentioned an elephant, what would you think of? You would think of the Republicans, right? If I mentioned a donkey, what would you think of? The Democrats. That's right. What about, what about nations? What about nations? What animal do you think represents America? That's right, the bald eagle. If you think about Great Britain, what animal represents Great Britain? A lion, that's right. One of the, one of the greatest mistakes that, that many Bible commentators make is that they try to make animals from today. They take animals from today and what, what, those animals, uh, what nations those animals represent, and they try to apply them to Bible times. And that is a big mistake, friends. But what we need to do is we need to discover what the animals symbolized in Bible times uh, in order for us to, to really understand what these symbols mean. In Bible times, um, Babylon was represented by a lion with eagle's wings. And you'll find, you'll find that on the walls of Babylon. And some of those walls have, have been uncovered. I believe this picture is in the British Museum. Uh, we saw last weekend how, this, how Babylon was described in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, we also saw that a bear represented which nation? Medo-Persia, that's right. And Greece represented, uh, it was represented by a leopard with wings, right? And the dragon-like beast was a symbol of pagan Rome. So where else in scripture do we see this dragon-like power? Well, we actually find it in the book of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. The Bible says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, for those uh, students of Bible prophecy out there, which you are all students of Bible prophecy, amen? Who is this child that the dragon is attempting to destroy? It is Jesus. That is correct. We've seen that in the Bible, the dragon represents who? Satan. Represents Satan. Revelation 12, 9 says that, it, that the, the dragon is the devil or Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we see that Satan works through a medium. It, Satan works through pagan Rome to attempt to destroy Jesus, to attempt to destroy the Messiah. After all, it was a Roman official, Herod, who passed a death decree to kill all the male children ages 2 and under. It was an attempt to kill baby Jesus. You remember that it was a Roman governor who sentenced Christ to death. It was a Roman soldier who crucified Jesus. And it was a Roman emblem that sealed Jesus' tomb. And, a, and Roman soldiers guarded that tomb. And in Revelation 13, we see that the devil is working through pagan Rome and that he would give this new power that arises the seat of his government. So the question is, is who did pagan Rome give its power throne in great authority too. Well, friends, there are at least six identifying characteristics. I believe there are more, but we're going to cover six tonight, describing this political and religious system mentioned in Revelation chapter 13. The first clue that will help us identify who this power is, is that it is a power that received its seat of its government from the authority of pagan Rome. So let's go to one of the 
the foremost uh, respected scholars of all of Roman history. Pre Professor LaBianca taught history for many years at the University of Rome, and, this, and he made this observation. He said, to the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to who? The pontiff, the pontiff that is the pope, the papacy. Now, what does the Bible say here, friends? The Bible says the dragon gave him his what? His power. power, his seat, and great authority. The Roman Empire was falling apart. It was crumbling. Constantine recognized that soon his empire would be overthrown by the Germanic invasions from the north. The barbarians were, were attacking the empire, and Europe was being divided up by these invading armies. So Constantine... Constantine decided to move the capital of his empire from Rome to Constantinople to modern-day Turkey, or Istanbul is what we call it today. And rather than leaving Rome vacant, he then gave the seat of his governmental authority to the popes of Rome. In fact, look at Stanley's history of the Eastern Church on page 197. It says, The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from what? Paganism. From paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. Now, in our presentation tonight, friends, it is not our desire in any way to offend or hurt any individuals. There are many fine Christians in the Roman Catholic Church system. Amen? There are many that are following God to the best of their ability, to the light that they have been given. And um, we believe that when God reveals truth, he will, people will follow. Amen? And that, that is what our prayer is for, for many of those genuine people, that God will continue to lead them and guide them. And remember, friends, as we continue on, that the beast is not a person. It is a religious political system. It is the papacy of the Roman church. And it's the same power as the little horn power that we looked at last weekend in Daniel chapter 7 that would attempt to change the very law of God. So let's look tonight at the, uh, the, at the evidence objectively. We're going to consider the facts of history, and then we're going to ask God the question, what do you want me to do with these facts? What do you want me to do with the knowledge that I've just received? So we've already seen thus far that the first clue to identifying this beast power is that the dragon, pagan Rome, would give the seat of its government to another power. And here's the second characteristic. It's found in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the land in the sorry, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So if all those whose names are not written in the book of life will worship the beast, will this beast be a small regional power or will it be a worldwide power? It would be a worldwide power, right? Therefore, this beast power would eventually become a worldwide religious power. The third characteristic is found in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. It says, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Most of the time when we think of this word blasphemy, we think of someone openly cursing God or denying the existence of God. But the Bible defines blasphemy quite differently. In scripture, blasphemy occurs when an earthly power 
or human being assumes the privileges and prerogatives of God himself. Friends, let's look at a time that Jesus himself was accused of blasphemy. John chapter 10, verse 33, the Bible says, The Jews answered him, that is, they answered Jesus, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, friends, was Jesus being blasphemous here? No, No, he was not. And why is that? It's because he's God. That's right. Jesus had the privileges and prerogatives of God because he is God. He's equal to God. But what about the Roman church? Does the Roman church have, um, does the Roman church make the claim of being equal to God? Well, let's see what they have to say about that. Here are the encyclical letters directly from the papacy of Leo XIII. This is what they said. We hold upon this earth the place of who? God Almighty. I will read that again in your hearing. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Now, friends, is this blasphemy? Absolutely it is. The history of the church, of the Roman church, speaks for itself. Now, let's look at another example or another aspect of blasphemy. Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, Why does this man, Jesus, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here they are calling Jesus a blasphemer because he was forgiving people's sins. Now, friends, could Jesus forgive sins? Yes, Yes, he can. He could back then and he still can today. Amen? Amen. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why can he do that, friends? It's because he is God. He has the privileges and prerogatives of God. But does the Roman church claim, make the claim that it has the ability to forgive sin? Yes, indeed it does. Look at this quote from Dignity and Duties of the Priests. Uh, This is uh, a book that each priest has to read to understand his duties. It says this, God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. Wow. 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 Now, is God obliged to abide by the judgments of the priests? No, he is not. Praise the Lord. Friends, we do not need an earthly priestly mediator because we already have one in heaven. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And friends, he alone can forgive sins. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, I already said it, but we'll look at it again. It says, If we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Friends, there is only one way to forgiveness, and that is through Jesus. Amen? Amen. So the third identifying characteristic of this beast power is that it claims equality with God, which is blasphemy. The fourth characteristic is found in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. The Bible says, It was granted to him to make war with who? The saints and to overcome them. Now, who are the saints? 
We are the saints. That's right. God's people throughout the centuries have been, God's faithful people have been classified as the saints in Scripture. Now, you may ask any church historian, did the church and state unite under Rome and persecute those who did not go along with its teachings? And this is what they will say. They will say the church has persecuted, period. They admit it. The church has persecuted only a tyro, only a beginner or novice in church history will deny that. That's, that was written in the Western Watchmen, which is written by our Roman Catholic friends in 1908. So the papacy of the Dark Ages was indeed a persecuting power. Bible-believing Christians were, were often condemned to death and even burned uh, at the stake, many of them. But it was considered to be okay. It was okay for the church to do this. They, they, they said that it was okay. Why? Why is that? Well, friends, the Catholic Church believed that the most serious crime that one could commit was the crime of heresy. And therefore, heresy was punishable by inflicting civil punishments. Uh, look at what they say in their own writings. This is from Public Ecclesiastical Law, Volume 2, page 142. It says, The church may, by divine right, confiscate the property of who? Heretics, Heretics and imprison their persons and condemn them to the flames. So the fourth characteristic that we've seen here tonight is that it would be a persecuting power. And indeed, it, it was. Uh, it made war with the saints of God. Let's look now at the next characteristic. Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. It says, And he, that is the beast's power, was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months. So the papacy was given authority for 42 months. Now, would those be literal months or would those be prophetic months? Well, we are studying Bible prophecy, so it would be prophetic. How long would 42 months in Bible prophecy be? Let's do some Bible math here tonight. In Bible prophecy, we've seen this before throughout our studies. In Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. And we got this from Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, which says, I have given you a day for each year. And we also get it from Numbers chapter 14, 34, which says, I have appointed a day for a year. So if we are talking about 42 prophetic months and there are 30 days in a month, according to the ancient calendars, all the ancient calendars of the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Assyrians, and even the Hebrews all had 30 days in their calendar for each month. So 42 prophetic months times 30 days for each month would be 1,260 prophetic days. But if a prophetic day equals a literal year, then the time period mentioned here would be the time period of 1,260 literal years. So the question begs to be asked, well, when does this prophecy begin? Well, the prophecy of the 1,260 years begins in A.D. 538 when the pagan Roman emperor Justinian gave the popes of Rome both religious and civil authority. This happened in the year 538. Then, according to the prophecy, the papacy was to last for 1,260 years and then receive a deadly wound. And this brings us down to the year 1798. Well, the question begs to be asked, well, what happened in 1798? 
1798, Napoleon felt challenged by the Pope of Rome. And so he sent his general, Berthier, down to Rome to take the Pope captive. So Berthier entered Rome in 1798, exactly as the prophecy predicted. And he took the Pope captive and brought him back to France. And the Pope died in captivity there in France. So what does history tell us about some of these uh, some of these remarkable events in history. Well, uh, here is what it says in Church History, page 24. It says, The murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the Eternal City. What, what city would that be? Vatican. That would be Rome. And putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence, and the enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope they declared, had resigned. So friends, this was a big moment in prophetic history. This power had reigned for 1,260 years, and now it received a deadly wound. So what does the Bible say would happen after this deadly wound? Well, here it is in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. The Bible says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So according to this verse, sometime in the future, the deadly wound would be healed. Now notice this incredible statement from 1929 from the San Francisco Chronicle. It says, the Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. So here the Italian leader Mussolini and the Catholic cardinal named uh, Gasperi signed a historic Roman pact. And notice the language that they used to describe this pact. It says, In affixing the autographs to the memorable documents, healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. So here we see the Bible says that the deadly wound would eventually be healed. And here the San Francisco Chronicle uses the very same language. It's very interesting, friends. So in 1929, the papacy once again became a church-state union, and this prophecy was fulfilled exactly. And friends, I would say that this is the first step of the wound being healed, because I believe that it continues to be healed to this day. And as we see, the papacy is growing more and more in its influence and in its power. So we've seen that the fifth characteristic of this beast power is that it would reign for 1,260 years. And the Roman church did indeed reign for that long. And the Bible goes on to give a sixth characteristic. It says in Revelation chapter 13, 18, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding do what? Calculate. Calculate. What do you, what do, you do with calculations? You, you add them up, right? You add them up. If, so God says right here, let him who has understanding calculate the number. So that means it should be something that can be understood, right? If God says you can calculate it, I think we should be able to calculate it. Okay, continuing on. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His, num his number is 666. Now notice, once again, that God said that this number could be calculated. Interestingly enough, friends, one of the official titles of the papacy is Vicarious Philly Day, or the Vicar of the Son of God. The number has to be linked 
to the head of the organization as his official title. Now, if it's a Roman power, then it would seem very fitting that you would need to use Roman numerals to discover its meaning. Roman numerals give you numerical calculations for each letter. When you look at the name vicarious Philly Day, we see the numerical value of the word vicarious is 112. You notice that there is an A, an R, and an S, and they don't have any number next to them, and that's because anciently they had new, no numerical value. And the same will be true of others, other letters left blank throughout the rest of this official title. Philae has the numerical value of 53, and then day, which means God, uh, is, has a value of 501. And when you add all these together up, it adds up to 666. And this was an official title used uh, by the popes of Rome for many, many years. Now you might say, look, John, well, maybe your name adds up to 666. And friends, whether my name adds up to 666 or whether your name adds up to 666 is absolutely irrelevant because remember there are more identifying characteristics to this beast power than just 666. Is that correct? Does that make sense? Okay. So remember that all of these identifying characteristics are pointing in one direction, right at the Roman church. So let's reveal the, the characteristics of this first beast that we've covered here tonight. We saw that this power would grow up out of Rome and that it would first get its authority from pagan Rome and the papacy did just that. Secondly, it would be a worldwide religious power and the Roman church is. It is the largest worldwide church in the world. Third, its leaders would claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sins. And the Roman church and its priests do just that. Fourth, at times the church would persecute. And as we looked at history, history has verified that that indeed happened on a massive scale. And fifth, it would be a power that would reign for 1,260 years. Then it would receive a deadly wound. And then that wound would eventually be healed. And, and as we saw, that power continues to grow uh, until this day. And sixth, its most exalted title would be 666. Then the Bible says that this power would do this. It says, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So what is the mark of the beast? Now that we've discovered who the beast is, uh, it will be a lot easier for us to identify its mark. And whatever the mark of the beast is, it would be opposite of what God's sign is. Because for every counterfeit, there is a genuine. You don't counterfeit things that don't have a genuine. Like you don't counterfeit a counterfeit $3 bill, right? Because we don't have a genuine. So, to understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand God's sign, his seal, or his mark. So let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, and we'll see what it says about the seal of the living God. The Bible says this, Then I, John, saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our gods in their foreheads. Now notice the mark of the beast can be received in the forehead or in the hand. But God's people only receive the seal on their forehead. So what, what is the difference here? Well, the mark of the beast in the forehead indicates that people have been deceived and they have decided to choose the beast's way. They have been misled and they have accepted falsehood rather than the truth. The mark of the beast in the hand indicates that they have been forced to do something against their will, even if they don't actually believe it. They have, but they have yielded to the pressures of the beast's power and they have been coerced. But friends, God doesn't coerce. God doesn't use force to get us to do things because love cannot be forced. And so God's people only receive his seal in their minds. They accept God's sign freely. So what does the Bible mean by sign or seal? Well, in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness. So in the Bible, a sign or seal or mark would be the same thing. So where is God's seal found? It's a good question. It's found in the Ten Commandments. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 16 says, Seal the law among my disciples. So what is God's seal? What is his sign or what is his mark? Here it is, friends. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 12. The Bible says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be what? A sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So the sign of loyalty is the seventh day Sabbath, which, God, which exalts God as the creator of heaven and earth. The Sabbath is God's sign. It's his seal. It is his mark of allegiance, as we saw last weekend. It reveals our allegiance to the creator God instead of the beast power. Now, there is something else about a seal that is very significant. Every seal makes a document legal. A seal authenticates a document. And every authentic seal has three things. Number one, it has the name of the one sealing. It has the title of the one sealing. And it has the domain of the one that is sealing. For example, if you wanted an official seal of the United States government in the days of Abraham Lincoln, it would say this. It would say, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. So every authentic and legal seal will answer those three questions. So God has a seal, and God's seal contains three things that make documents legal. God said this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do how much work? No work. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord, that is his name, right? The Lord made. What does that mean? It means that the Lord is the creator God. That would be his title. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And heavens and earth shows the territory or the domain of God. He is 
the maker of the heavens and the earth. That is his territory. The sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So here in the heart of God's law, in the fourth commandment, God's Sabbath commandment authenticates the entire Ten Commandments. When the commandments say, thou shalt not kill, you could say, why not? Who says I shouldn't kill? The Lord says it. The Lord says it, friends. That is his name. His title is maker or creator. His territory or his domain is heaven and earth. So the Sabbath commandment contains God's name. It contains his title as well as his territory. And it seals the law, making it binding on all. That's why God says this in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20. He says, hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be what? A sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Friends, the Sabbath is a sign of loyalty. It is a sign of faithfulness to our Creator God. The Sabbath is God's mark. It is his symbol that we may know him and worship him as our Creator God. The central issue regarding the mark of the beast is over the issue of worship. You see that worship is used so many times throughout the book of Revelation. The issues are true worship on one hand and false worship on the other. Notice how the Bible describes it here in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. It says, Then I, John, saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who did what? Made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here is a call in the last days of heaven and earth to call people back to true worship, to worshiping God as our creator God. And in a couple of verses later, just after this, it gives us a warning not to worship the beast's power. In Revelation 14, 9, it says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships who? The beast. the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Friends, God doesn't want anyone to worship the beast. That's why this last message of warning goes out in Revelation chapter 14. That's why we have to preach messages like this, friends. I have a moral obligation as a preacher of the Bible to preach topics like the mark of the beast. And in just two verses after this, we see that God does have a faithful people at the end of time. It says in Revelation 14, 12, it describes God's last day people as this. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So let's summarize what's happening here in Revelation chapter 14. In verse 7, we see that there is a call to true worship, to worship God as the creator God. Two verses later, we see that there is a warning against false worship, a warning against worshiping the beast in his image. And then just three verses after that, it shows that God has an end time people who keep his commandments. Friends, it is very clear that, these, that the end time issue is an issue over worship. God will have an end time group of people that, that worship him and are loyal to him by keeping all of the Ten Commandments. And so if, this, if the Sabbath is a sign of worshiping the Creator, who, what would be the beast's sign or his mark? Well, what does the Roman Catholic Church say is a sign of its authority? 
It's only fair to look at what the church says about itself, right? So notice the Catholic record here on September 1, 1923. It says, Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Friends, is the church above the Bible? Absolutely not. The Bible should be our, our source of truth. Amen? Amen? The Bible says it is the truth. But here it says the church is above the Bible and that the transfer, transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Ladies and gentlemen, you can discover these quotations for yourself. You can go online and you can Google this. They are not hiding this information. So God's mark is the Sabbath, but the Roman church claims that its mark of authority is Sunday, the first day of the week. Here's a statement from St. Catherine's Church uh, that it had in its newsletter, May 21, 1995. It says, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. So they didn't have any backing from the Bible, but they sensed its own power. It continues, it says, people who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Now friends, a Seventh-day Adventist is not writing this. This is being written in a Catholic church newsletter. I believe that's amazing, friends, amazing. So the question might be asked, what about Bible-believing Christians that love Jesus and worship on the first day of the week? Do they have the mark of the beast? And the answer is no, they do not. Friends, I want to make that very plain tonight. No one has the mark of the beast at this moment. We know what the mark of the beast is, but nobody currently has it. That won't happen until it is forced by law. Because remember, the Bible says that he causes them to receive the mark of the beast. There must be an element of force involved in order order for it to um, be enforced in, in these last days. Now, how could that happen, friends? Well, we've had Sunday blue laws before, even here in free America. Let me show you what was said some years ago by Pope John Paul II. He said this, Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So Rome is determined that there will be legislation, laws that are passed, setting Sunday aside as a holy day. Even many shops in in some European countries are already closed because of Sunday work laws. But no one has that mark now, friends. Here is what the Bible teaches. It teaches that there are many Christians who love Jesus and who do not understand the central issues that we've been talking about in our series thus far. They are faithful Christians that are committed to the Lord. And in their hearts, they want to serve Christ, but they do not fully understand that there is a church system that has attempted to change God's law from Sabbath to Sunday. They do not understand that this church system claims that its mark of authority is to place tradition above the Bible. But before Jesus returns, he will make these issues clear to all of mankind. That's why this revelation, this uh, three angels' messages of Revelation 14 go out, so that every honest person uh, will have an opportunity to understand the truths for our time. 
Friends, do you, rem- do you remember that in the days of Daniel, church and state united and that there was a decree passed enforcing worship? An image was erected and the entire state was, was uh, forced to bow down and worship. And this was contrary to the commandments of God. And in the future, church and state will once again unite. And it is at this point when the issues become clear that the mark of the beast will be enforced and worship will be commanded by force. So people will give in for one of two reasons in these last days. Number one, because they are genuinely deceived. They genuinely believe that this beast power has the authority to change the very law of God. And number two, they will give in for economic reasons so that they can buy and sell, so that they can provide food for their families. And at this point, people will have to make a decision. Will they be faithful to God or will they give in to this beast power? So many of us are facing a decision tonight. We're facing a decision between truth and a decision between tradition. And many others have faced this this decision before us. And this is about worship, friends. It's more than just a matter of days. It's a matter of of authority. It's a matter of masters. Who has your hearts? Friends, God is calling us away from this beast power, and he's calling us back to his holy word. God is calling us to take a stand to follow Bible truth. In every age, God has had men and women that have been faithful to him. In the days of Noah, God invited his people to take a stand. It was not popular in Noah's day, and it may not be popular in our day, but God is inviting us to take a stand for him. In the days of Daniel, God invited his people to take a stand. It was not popular in Daniel's day, and it may not be popular today, but God is inviting us to take a stand. In the days of Jesus, God invited his people to take a stand. It was not popular in Jesus' day to follow Christ. The large popular way has never been the way. The Bible says narrow is the way that leads to life. In the days of the early Christians, God invited his people to take a stand. And for them, sometimes that meant martyrdom. It meant being burned at the stake for their faith. In the dark ages, God invited his people to take a stand. Faithful, Bible-believing Christians have taken a stand down through the ages. John chapter 4 verse 26 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit Spirit and truth. Friends, God wants his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is important to God. Amen? Amen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In the last days, God invites his people to take a stand. He's inviting you and me. And friends, if you know what God wants you to do, but you hesitate because it's unpopular, How can you expect to influence your family? How can you uh, expect to influence your friends for God's truth? If you don't make a stand, why should they? God is inviting us to take a stand today. Will you say to Jesus right now, Lord, I see the issues. I see the issues. It's more than just a matter of days. It's more than just a matter of Saturday versus Sunday. It's a matter of masters. And I want to be on your side in these last days. Friends, if that is your desire, that you want to be on the Lord's side in these last days, I'd invite you to stand with me tonight. That you don't want to follow this beast power, you don't want to be deceived by this beast power, but you want to stand true, just like Daniel, and just like the early disciples. Stand faithful for God.
Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that you have always had a faithful people that have kept your commandments, Lord, throughout history. And Lord, we want to be a part of that number here in these last days. Lord, we realize that the beast power has its mark and and he wants to enforce that upon the world. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to stand for you in these last days. Lord, help us to receive the seal of God. Lord, help us to love your holy Sabbath day, Lord, and, and to experience the full blessings of it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to share this truth with others, Lord, that, that are searching, that are longing for heaven, longing for the truths of God's word. And I pray that you would be with each one of us, Lord. Give us the courage, Lord. May we, can, may we daily spend time sitting at your feet, Lord, spending time with you, being taught of you so that we can stand through the tests and the trials to come. This is our prayer, and we ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.